We affirm that identifying marks of local churches are faithful confession and proclamation of the Word of God and responsible administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper. We affirm that churches are subject to the Word of Christ in their order as in their doctrine, and that in addition to their commitment to a local church, Christians may properly involve themselves in parachurch organizations for specialized ministry. We affirm that Christ calls the church to serve Him by its worship, nurture, and witness as His people in the world. That Christ sends the church into the whole world to summon sinful humanity to faith, repentance, and righteousness, and that the unity and clarity of Scripture encourage us to seek to resolve doctrinal differences among Christians and so to manifest the oneness of the Church of Christ. And there are the majority of the affirmations from Article 4 uh, on the uh, Church and its Mission in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Application, which came out in the 1980s. And we started talking about it last week, and we're continuing to talk about it this week on The Faith of Eight. Thanks for spending part of your Sunday morning with us here. I'm Troy Skinner. You can find me and uh, everything I'm connected with, social media, all that sort of stuff, at householdoffaithinchrist.com. That's householdoffaithinchrist.com. Joined this week on the panel again by the Razvies. Got Daniel Razvi and his proud papa, Imran Razvi, known as Raz, to his friends. And they have a church in Thurmont and a ministry they started many years ago called uh, Conquered by Love Ministries online at conqueredbylove.org. So we got off onto some tangents last week that slowed us down in our progress, but hopefully they were edifying and helpful and you know, I don't know if they're clarifying or muddling. I'm not sure which, but we'll listen back later and see what we decided. Uh, but the church and its mission. I just read all the affirmations uh, that we didn't read last week on Article 4, uh, and we have the denials still. Let me just read those now, and then we'll deal with this whole section uh, as a group. So the denials for the church and its mission. We deny that the church can grant canonical authority to Scripture. We deny that the church is constituted by the will and traditions of men, that the church can bind the conscience apart from the word of God, that the church can free itself from the authority of the written word of God and still exercise valid discipline in Christ's name. We deny that the church can accommodate itself to the demands of a particular culture if those demands conflict with scriptural revelation or if they restrain the liberty of Christian conscience. And we deny that differing cultural situations invalidate the biblical principle of male female equality, or the biblical requirements for their roles in the church. Now, last one's a doozy. It's yeah, much more a lot relevant of... today than it was at the time even. Yeah. Um, but I want to go back. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back, actually, a little bit higher. It says, we deny that the church is constituted by the will and traditions of men. I agree, and I think that's a contradiction with what they said earlier, which is, we affirm that identifying marks of local churches are faithful confession and proclamation of the Word of God and responsible administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I think that it's a Catholic tradition that the church has to administer the Lord's Supper in a proper fashion. And I don't think there's such a command from Scripture. I think we should have the Lord's Supper. Um, but the, the idea that it has to be organized or approved Is that what they're saying, though? Because the they're saying it's the mark of a church. So if, if there's a church that never has a Lord's Supper, doesn't ever baptize somebody, never proclaims the gospel, is it really a church? Well, proclaim the gospel, that's good. I agree with that. Baptism, yeah. When, uh, but then the Lord's Supper, yes, believers should be doing that, but the local church doesn't need to necessarily organize it. They could, or they don't have to. Um, but believers should be doing it. And also, I mean, same with baptism. Anybody can baptize and be baptized any place. It's a confession to, to, the, to the world. That, so, yeah, I, th I think it's a slippery slope because you start to 
end up doing what the Catholics did, saying the priest has to be involved in everything. The priest has to decide if you can, he can give you the Eucharist. The priest has to take your confessional. The priest has to uh, baptize you. And the priest has to marry you. Well, none of those things, especially the last one, have any basis in Scripture. The priest doesn't marry people in, in, in Scripture. The, the fathers get together and negotiate a marriage, and then they have a party. That's the biblical marriage, right? So uh, that's a Catholic tradition. I think a lot of the Catholic traditions are still in uh, our churches today. I, I've met, met and talked to a lot of pastors who I have very high respect for that are adamant that the elders are responsible for administering the Lord's Supper. It must be done uh, by order and purpose and, and properly organized by the elders. No, the Scripture doesn't say that. It just says, do this as often as you drink it or eat, or eat it, it being the Passover, so once a year yeah. at least. But I, again, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm disagreeing, and, and I don't think the article is disagreeing with you, because it's saying that we affirm, this is uh, the one, two, three, this is the fourth affirmation under Article 4, for those reading along at home. Mm -hmm. The affirmation that I, uh, we affirm that identifying marks of local churches mm -hmm. are faithful confession and proclamation of the Word of God, and responsible administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper. So they're talking about these are the identifying marks of a of a of a faithful local church. It doesn't even say, say anything about pastors. Well, or I would say that those are identifying marks of believers. Yeah, and, and I would say the first one may be uh, of a church, but the second two are not necessarily of the church. What's the church? The church is a group of believers that are uh, led by uh, elders that they've that they've appointed. Um, or elected or whatever among themselves. So if, a, if, if somebody, if, if a group of believers gather together uh, to form a local church and they irresponsibly administer baptism in the Lord's Supper, then that would be a, that a would mark be a, that they're, that they're mark not... mark of a bad church. Yeah. Correct. I agree with that. So that's, what, that's, what, that's how I'm reading what they're saying. Well, that's, but that's the negative. This one is, is, is the positive, saying that um, this is how you'll tell if it's a, if it's a church, if they're responsibly administering the Lord. Well... Yeah, who's they? Who's you know the church? When I hear the church, I use, I I understand them to mean the leadership team of the church, the the elders and the organization of the church doing this. And so, and it's possible that's what they meant, but they don't actually say that. So I'm I'm willing yeah. to give them a, a wide berth there yeah. for okay. what the, for what that's worth. Sure. Uh, there was another one you said, or no? No, no, that was really the main thing. Uh, and again, I don't disagree. I don't think you know the elders shouldn't have anything to do with the Lord's Supper or anything like that. I just want to be careful to not make it that exclusive. You have to be ordained by the leader of your organization. You have to be going to Bible college to be an elder. Then you you have to be there to marry people and to baptize people and to do this and that. A lot of in, this, in scripture is just any believer. Yeah, and I, and I and I agree with that. Um, it does have practical application. You have to think through, like when it comes to some sort of church discipline. You know, if you're going to treat someone as an unbeliever, you know, who makes that call? How is that? How is that done? Sure, sure. And that plays on. You know, you're not going to welcome them to, to the the fellowship table if they're not in fellowship, if they're to be treated as an unbeliever. Right. So the, it, there are some practical, and I think that over time, part of it could be the Roman Catholic connection. Part of it could just be practical considerations. How else do we do this? Mm -hmm. you know, how do we enforce some sort of spiritual discipline in somebody's life so that they will recognize their need to repent and turn back to the faith kind of thing? Right. Uh, so it might be because of echoes of the Roman Catholic positions, and, it, and a lot of our stuff is probably still affected by that at some level. Yeah. Uh, but it also might just be you know, yeah, but I, I think practical this, concerns. This can also lead to unnecessary... Um, judgment from an elder or a pastor saying you're not saved or you you didn't repent enough and we're not able to discern what's in a man's heart only god can 
And, and I that's think why it says, let a man examine himself, and then so let him eat and drink, right? The church doesn't discipline regarding the Lord's Supper. The church disciplines from general fellowship altogether in the church if you can see open sin in somebody's life. Yeah. So, yeah that's well, what I was saying. Yeah. And you're right. I don't, I don't think the statement necessarily means they're disagreeing with me. But I, I've again, I'm reading into it because I've I know a bunch of pastors that would would dis- disagree with me on this, and uh, and so that's why I wanted to bring it up. And we like to be disagreeable. <laughs> I don't disagree. Faith, it is called the faith debate, after all, right? We got absolutely, to yeah. Well, the own the spirit of iron sharpening iron is why we do this show, and it's kind of not to steal language from the from the other side of uh, the ideological spectrum, but you know, we we want to create a safe space where we can. You know, and really so go after it. So to manifest the oneness of the church in Christ, seeking to resolve doctrinal differences, as they said in this. Right. You know, uh, we're in agreement there. That's what we should be doing. Now, the denials are interesting, right? Uh, we deny that the church can grant canonical authority to Scripture. That's a definite shot uh, the at the Roman Catholic <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, tradition, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the deny the church is constituted by the will and traditions of men. Again, I think another shot. Uh, at the Roman Catholic tradition. Right. Uh, and at many established Protestant denominations. They're very traditional, as in we do these traditions this way because we said so and because we've always done so. So, And the church is not over Scripture, but Scripture is over the church is right. kind of what they're trying to say with some of these other things. Um, what else? Changing culture doesn't change God. Right. You know, you soar a comedy different cultures because... Uh, it, when you can, but if it differs from what God's commands are, you have to follow God's commands, particularly with male and female. It's interesting that was the one thing they included in this um, thing. And if they had if they had drafted this statement another thirty years later, they probably would have felt further need to clarify that there are only male and female, um, and then nothing in between. You can't switch back and forth between one or the other. Um, so, uh, but definitely, yeah, the. The biblical requirements of men and women are different in the church. Now, the next one, Article 5, um, they have a lot of words there, and, and uh, it almost feels like they shouldn't need that many words for this one, but we'll see what they say. Sanctity of human life. Article 5, yep. We affirm that God, the Creator, is sovereign over all human life, and mankind is responsible under God to preserve and protect it. Amen! We affirm that the sanctity of human life is based on the creation of mankind in the image and likeness of God. That the, amen, that the life of a human being begins at conception, fertilization, and continues until biological death, thus abortion, except where the continuance of the pregnancy imminently threatens the mother's physical life. Infanticide, suicide, and euthanasia are all forms of murder. We affirm that the penal... Just notice what they do not say. They did not say except no. in rape, rape and incest. Right, yeah. Health of the mother. They said life of the mother is the only exception to abortion being called murder. Yeah, and even that parenthetical statement, I was going to come back to it a little bit since we paused. That, parents, that parenthetical statement, it almost doesn't have to be there, it seems to me, but or I don't know. I, I, I like to think in terms of if, a, if the life of the child um, is threatening the life of the mother... I don't think that the Christian biblical view is that, okay, well, you kill the baby to save the mother. Uh, I think the biblical view is you do your darndest to save both, and if in the process of trying to save both, one of them dies, you're not guilty of murder because you're trying to save both. That's the thing. It's a false uh, uh, argument because there is no situation where the where. Uh, where the the baby is threatening the mother's life. The baby's not holding a gun to her head, right? (laughs) You can deliver the baby and attempt to resuscitate it. That's... Right. The one, right, right, right. There is no situation in which killing the baby actively saves the mother's life. 
Right. There's no situation. Has never been, to my knowledge, and I, I've, I've done I think a lot the of research arg- on that. The most common scenario would be where the baby doesn't fall all the way and it gets caught in the fallopian tubes kind of thing, right? And then it's, uh, there's, there, what's the fancy word for that kind of pregnancy? Entopic. Entopic pregnancy. And so if, if the baby continues to grow mature, uh, the mother's not going to survive. Well, in those cases, okay, you, you might have to go in there and get the baby out. Mm-hmm. But you go in there and get the baby out with the intents of doing everything possible to try to still somehow save that baby. Yeah. Right. And if it's not viable, okay, well, God will decide whether it's viable or not. You do your darndest, and if the baby dies, you did your darndest, you're not guilty of murder. Right. But if you go in there and, and, and then, you know, take the baby out and, and, and crush it and throw it into the, you know, in, into the garbage disposal or something. like or in your pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So, anyway, we affirm that the penal view of social justice is compatible with the sanctity of human life. We affirm that withholding food or water in order to cause or hasten death is a violation of the sanctity of life. We affirm that because advancing medical technology has obscured the distinction between life and death, it is essential to elevate each terminal evaluate. case. Evaluate. What did I just say? Elevate. Oh, sorry. Evaluate each terminal case with the greatest care so as to preserve the sanctity of human life. These have been, since this was written... There have been some big news stories on some of these topics, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Terry Schiavo case comes to mind down in Florida about yeah. probably 10 years ago, maybe. Yeah. Right? This is in the 80s, by the way, for the list, those listening. 1986, 1986 is when this is written. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, well, let's go through the denials before we talk, talk more about it. Okay, so we deny that the quality of human life has priority over its sanctity. We deny that the sanctity of prenatal life uh, negates the propriety of necessary medical procedures to preserve the life of the pregnant mother, which we were just talking about. We deny that killing is self uh, in self-defense, in state-administered capital punishment, or in wars justly fought is necessarily a violation of the sanctity of human life. We deny that those who reject a divine basis for moral law are exempt from the ethical and social obligation to preserve and protect innocent human life and deny that allowing death without medical intervention to prolong life is always a violation of the sanctity of human life. Boy, there's a lot of mouthful in all yeah. that. But, um, so basically they're saying capital punishment is fine, self-defense is fine, wars are fine. That's not what God meant when he said thou shalt not kill. But abortion is evil, and um, you can just not get treatment at all if, uh, you know, that that would prolong your life. But you can't say, well, I'm refusing to eat, Um, you know, so that will be what there's. I I don't know. Allowing death without medical intervention to prolong life, depending on what that is, I guess, because sometimes you can be just on a ventilator with no consciousness. Um, But they're trying to leave room for that. Exactly. You know what? We did what we can. There's nothing else we can do. We're not going to kill you, but we're also not going to artificially keep you alive because it would be artificial at that point. Yeah, and at that point, you almost have to – are they even keeping them alive? Are they just artificially keeping the motor running? Right. But – the person's dead. The they're gone. gone right? Yeah, they're gone. It's just the, the the mechanics of the body. You can keep them going for a little while, but they're gone. And I was happy to see that the, these people all signed the statement that capital punishment is not a because I, I, I hear all these politicians lately, even conservative politicians. I'm pro life from birth till death. Therefore, I'm also against capital punishment. No, 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 no. Th- those are two completely separate things. But that is an argument you'll hear in conversation with people, right? Well, the Bible says you can't yeah. kill, so no capital punishment, no, no war, no, no, not, no yeah. self-defense, no nothing. You can't kill. Yep. Well, the same Bible that says thou shalt not kill also commands stoning for certain crimes, right? So 
Yeah, we need to understand that what is really meant there is you shouldn't murder. Correct. And we define that. And um, were you guys paying attention to what John Piper said a few years back about, you know, if uh, if uh, somebody broke into his house and, and a rapist and was uh, was raping his wife that and, and he had a gun, he would not shoot the intruder because he shouldn't kill. I mean, that's insane. And Absolutely. I, and I say that as somebody for a lot of years has had a lot I of respect for his wife, for John Piper. I think John Piper has actually been a blessing to the church. A lot of what he has written, and, and and he's one of the one of the great preachers of his generation. I mean, so much passion, and you know, it, he's great. But boy, he couldn't be more wrong Absolutely. on that particular question. The husband's job is to protect his family. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, Jesus, even Jesus said, right? If the strong man knew what time the guy would come out, he would have protected the house. It's only, presumably, it was okay for him to protect the house, right? Now, this next one speaks to about the husband protecting the house, in a sense, right? We'll, we'll find out anyway. Article 6 is about marriage and the family. And we've talked a l- about this issue quite a bit uh, the past year or so on the faith debate. So we'll see how many of these things have already been touched upon in recent months. We affirm that the purpose of marriage is to glorify God and extend his kingdom on earth uh, in an institution that provides for chastity, companionship, procreation, and Christian upbringing of children. We affirm that since marriage is a sacred covenant under God, uniting a man and a woman as one flesh, church and state should require faithfulness to God's intention that it be a permanent bond. We affirm that in the marriage pattern ordained by God, the husband as head is the loving servant leader of his wife, and the wife as helper in submissive companionship is a full partner with her husband. We affirm that loving, nurture, and discipline of children is a God-ordained duty of parents, and God-ordained obedience to parents is a duty of children. We affirm that the church has a responsibility to nurture the family, that honor honor to parents is a lifelong duty of all persons and and includes responsibility for the care of the aged or aged. And we affirm that the family should perform many services now commonly assumed by the state. I'm going to pause there because there's a, a, anything that you – there's a lot of stuff there that's countercultural. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are countercultural. Um, and, you know, it is a permanent bond. That's God's intention to death. Divorce was not at God's ever, ever God's intention. That's why Jesus even said about – well, Moses said that because of the hardest of your hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. It was one man and one woman for their entire lifetime. That was the design of God. Now, we'll see in the denials, they have some exceptions to that. And they, they say, well, what if, what if? But I think that's important. Now, one comment I would make says, church and state should require faithfulness to God's intention that it be a permanent bond. And I agree. I think this is going a lot farther than a lot of Christians would go today. They say, oh, well, the government should just stay out of it altogether. Well, no, the government should, should say that it, to punish, I mean, adultery is a crime in the Bible. And so uh, adultery would be a violation of this marriage bond, and that should be a crime that's prosecutable by the government. That's the only institution that can really prosecute such a crime. But with that said, church and state should not uh, officially start a marriage. I think that's actually not a biblical concept. We talked about that earlier. I think that's between the families or the two people. They say, and particularly with the state. We're married now. I mean, you you should be able to go rent a house or buy a house together with a woman and say, we're married now, publicly, we are married, and that's it. That's all you need to be married. Now, society at large should hold you to that. Well, you're married, then you need to act married, only be with each other for the rest of your life. Yeah. But yeah, the state getting the church, involved, you know. Or the church, you know, getting involved, you know, either the, one. The, the, the church, 
I mean, they're separate issues. And the church, uh, I think the church being involved is fine, whether it's required or not. Yeah, I, I mean, the uh, uh, the institution of marriage predates the existence of the church. Um, but the state getting involved, you know, they have these little fees and these requirements, these paperwork processing things. Anything that the government can, can have that kind of control over, they have the power to destroy it. And they have. Right? Yeah. And so I don't think, I don't like the state being involved almost at any level, but... But I do agree that the state should require faithfulness in marriage. I think that's, that is a, a duty of the state, is to punish certain crimes. There's very few crimes, uh, biblically, that the state should be punishing. One is murder. We talked about that earlier. And uh, rape, you talked about that a minute ago. Adultery is another one. Um, all 50 states, as, as far as I know, still have laws against adultery on the books. None of them are enforced, but, you know, and they won't be. I mean, what is the purpose of a government? Government is to, you know, protect the civility and the orderly of, of society. And when there is adultery, that is breaking down the civility of society and bringing down the, the bonds that God created. And so they should be responsible for that. And other things are countercultural. You know, uh, to honor your parents means that you should take care of them when they grow old. But that's not the way things are now, right? The, the, the social safety net that the government runs uh, is responsible for that. And it ends with, you know, the family should perform many services now commonly assumed by the state. Ain't that the truth? Education comes to mind, by yep. the way. Um, we deny that pleasure and self-fulfillment are the basis of marriage and that hardships are justifiable, justifiable cause for breaking the marriage covenant. So they're, they're denying that that's the case. We deny that the biblical idea of marriage can be fulfilled either by a couple living together without a lawful marriage covenant or by any form of same-sex or group cohabitation. We deny that the state has the right to legitimatize views of marriage and the family unit that contravene biblical standards. We deny that changing social conditions ever make God-ordained marriage or family roles obsolete or irrelevant. And we deny that the state has the right to usurp biblically des uh, designated parental responsibility. Again, this is the 1980s. It's really interesting how hyper-relevant this feels ever since the Obergefell decision and uh, every, all the nonsense that's followed from that. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely um, a, a timeless document here. It's still, still super relevant today. But I would, I would uh, clarify again here, we deny that the biblical idea of marriage can be fulfilled either by a couple living together without a lawful marriage covenant or by any form of same-sex or group cohabitation. The last part, sure, same-sex does not count, and group uh, cohabitation, uh, cohabitation without marriage, no. It, 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 and the question is, what is a lawful marriage covenant? Because, again... Right, and they don't define it. They don't define it. To me, a lawful marriage covenant is two people that publicly say that they're married. That's a marriage covenant. You don't have to have somebody else approving of the covenant to make it a covenant. Um, because the covenant is between the two people before for God. Um, and then the quest about the question about the group cohabitation, I don't know if that's dealing with polygamy and things like that, which, while never explicitly condemned in Scripture, is, is clear that's not God's intention. Um, but that would be multiple wives, not multiple husbands. Um, and a lot of the modern stuff that you see on the news is like this four-way four or eight-way type of multiple husbands and wives type of thing. And Why not? That's very... Very Whatever makes you happy. As long as they're happy, love is love. Come on. <laughs> so let's you want to move on to the next one. You know, the next one is, ties to some of this. Article 7 is divorce and remarriage. 
We affirm that the marriage of Adam and Eve as a lifelong monogamous relationship is the pattern for all marriages within the human race. We affirm that God unites husband and wife in every covenanted and consummated marriage and will hold covenant breakers morally accountable. We affirm that since the essence of the marriage covenant is lifelong commitment to the covenant partner, uh, action in relation to a marital breakdown should at least initially aim at the reconciliation of the partners and restoration of the marriage. We affirm that God hates divorce however motivated. We affirm that although God hates divorce, in a sinful world, separation is sometimes advisable and a divorce is sometimes inevitable. We affirm that God forgives repentant sinners, even those who have sinned by uh, sundering their marriages. We affirm that the local church has the responsibility to discipline those who violate the biblical standards for marriage, compassionately restore those who repent, and faithfully minister God's grace to those whose lives have been scarred by marital disruption. And actually, this is awkward, but we're going to pause there. We've read these, but we're not going to talk about them until next week's show, so it's a cliffhanger episode. This next week on the same Bat Channel, you'll find out what our answers are to that, and we'll go through the denials. There's only a couple of denials, actually, for this section. So, anyway, this is the Faith Debate on News Radio 930 WFMD. Daniel Rasby, Imran Rasby, thank you uh, for participating on the panel again this week. Thank you for listening, spending part of your Sunday morning with us if you're listening on the radio, or part of your day with us if you're listening to the podcast. I'm Troy Skinner. Find us online at householdoffaithinchrist.com. Till next week, 167 and a half hours from right now, God bless.